chapter 6, and I'm going to be reading verses 14 through 20. Let me remind you, this is God's Word. It is inspired by the Spirit of God. It comes from the mouth of God. We're to live by every word of it. Ephesians 6, 14. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace, in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication, to that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Let's pray, and then we'll dive into this passage. Father, thank you for giving us another opportunity to gather and to lift up the name of the Lord Jesus. And we pray that today he will be glorified by sinners repenting and turning to him, calling upon his saving name. We pray, our Father, that you will pour out the spirit of redemption to draw those who are far from Christ to him, that they may love him and follow him into heaven at the last day. Thank you that many of us have been called by your mercy and grace. And as followers of Christ, we ask that you will now nourish us on the good word of God. We pray that you would give us those soft hearts, hearts of good soil, that we'll receive your word and it'll spring up and bear fruit unto everlasting life. So pour out the spirit who illuminates human understanding at the reading of God's word, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. So I think it's very cool that Jesus Christ is our lion and our lamb and our shepherd. Kind of an interesting combination. He's a lion. He's powerful on our behalf. He fights off our enemies. He's lamb a sacrificial animal who vicariously gave himself in our stead. And he's shepherd. He tends to our souls. He leads us to still waters and green pastures. He is lion, lamb, and shepherd. And many of us have been blessed. We have come to know him and to love him and to follow him, and we found life in his name. But we are currently the church militant. We are the church at war. And in our text, we have an adversary. He is the devil of old. He is the accuser of the brethren. He is the prince of the power of the air. He is the God of this age. He is that serpent of old, furious with the people of God. He rages war against us. He roams about as a roaring lion, seeking whom he may 
devour. Thank you. you. I was going to ask you to say it, but you said the word. So Paul is writing us. He's coming down home stretch in Ephesians, and it's like he thought, all right, what do I want to leave them with? And this is what he leaves us with. He's already told us, so here's, here was the first command. The first imperative was be strong. So he wants us to be strong believers because it's warfare. And then he said, I also want you to be armed. So you're in the army, so you want your Kevlar on. You want your army on because there's fiery darts. There's evil days. He wants us to be strong, and he wants us to be armed. By the way, I think those are basically just about the same thing anyway. If you're strong, you're armed. If you're armed, you're strong. But today we're coming to the first two pieces of the actual armor. There are six pieces. Paul talks about the whole armor of God. That's the Greek word panoply, the whole armor. And he wants you to have every one of the six pieces, but we're looking at the first two today. And I'll tell you, I love them. Just before we get to them, let me give you a general reminder about these weapons of our warfare and about our spiritual armor. Here's the general reminder, the general comment. We'll put it up for you. It's important. Our weapons, we might add in our armor, are spiritual, not physical, right? You all know that. But let, let's make it real clear. Like when, when you become a believer, you repent of your sins and you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and he gives you the gift of forgiveness and pardon and everlasting life and he issues you some weapons for warfare. He doesn't give you an actual, physical, large safe in the combination and you open the safe and there's three or four or five or six ARs in there, and there's a bunch of Glocks and a few H&Ks in there and a whole lot of ammo. Now, it's not that kind of armor because it's not that kind of warfare. Our weapons are spiritual, not physical. Paul makes quite a wonderful point of this, if we can jump ship for a second, over in 2 Corinthians 10, verses 4 and 5. He writes, For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh. So it's not a bow and arrow, it's not a Glock, it's not nine millimeter ammo, it's not an AR-15 and 5.56, it's none of that. The weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but nonetheless, they have divine power to destroy strongholds. I like that. That's a manly verse. We like destroying strongholds. Divine power, not just frail human power. The power of God is available in these weapons for our warfare to destroy strongholds. He goes on in verse 5. We destroy arguments. And every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. And we take every thought captive to obey Christ. So as Christians in, in the church, we sometimes destroy arguments. You're getting together with your friend for coffee, and they're going to argue that Scientology is the thing. And you've studied up a little bit on that, and you just seek to kindly, graciously, firmly obliterate it. We, that's okay. We destroy arguments. And every lofty opinion, that's what that thing is, raised against the knowledge of God. We, and we're seeking to take every one of our thoughts, and God help us, every one of their thoughts, captives. We're in a war. Who are the captives? Our thoughts. 
obey, uh, to obey Christ. So the big point here, verse four again, the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh. They're spiritual weapons. They're weapons that can't be seen. The whole armor, the, whole armor, the panoply, six pieces. Here's the first. Man, I like this one. Verse 14. Stand, therefore. That's the, I should have counted. That's the fourth or fifth or sixth time he's used that word stand in this passage starting way back in verse 10. The whole point of the armor, the whole point of being strong is so you can engage in the evil day. You can engage in the day of battle when fiery darts are just flying your way. And when, when, when the smoke clears and the dust settles, there you are standing in Christ. It's like I mentioned this last week, but it reminds me of, you know, our flag was still there. Your flag, you, you're still there. Feet planted firmly in the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Stand, therefore, and then here's the first piece of armor, having fastened on the belt of truth. So you've fastened on a belt, but the belt is really not a belt. The belt is really what? It is truth. You've fastened truth to yourself. Now, they had a belt. Paul's, a, Paul's in Rome. He's a prisoner. He's, he's in chains. He's an ambassador in chains. But he's got Roman guards, and he's seeing them, and he's thinking, hmm, the helmet, the belt, the breastplate, the feet, the whole thing. I can leverage this to teach things about the Christian life. And so he chooses the belt first. There's kind of what the belt would have looked like. It's got all those leather parts hanging down to, like, protect your middle parts but still allow flexibility and movement and all that. But when you fasten a belt on, like, I'm, you'll be glad to know, I'm wearing a belt right now. Don't want any wardrobe malfunctions here. I'm wearing a belt. And, and it's a pretty firm belt. It's actually a tactical belt. It's good for putting a holster on. But anyway, I'm not wearing a holster right now. Don't get worried. But I'm, I'm wearing a belt. It's my favorite belt. It's about the only one I ever wear because I love it. And you would have a very hard time, like, grabbing me by the belt back here and getting that thing off. It's not coming off. It's fastened to me. That's the idea. Paul's thinking about what article of clothing is really fastened to a person. It would probably be harder, like unless you undid it, be harder to get a belt off than shoes, than shirt, than breastplate, than helmet. You grab a helmet and pull it off, but the belt is on there. So he chooses the belt and says, I want you all wearing a belt. But what's the belt? It's not leather. It's truth. It's the belt of truth fastened on you. So what is this about? This is about you having solid biblical truth and biblical convictions fastened to your soul. That's what this is. So you see how this is the same thing really as being, being strong. Being armed is being strong. Being strong is being armed. You've got biblical convictions about basic Bible, biblical doctrines, and they are fastened to your soul. Really fastened. So when the devil comes along to sift you like wheat, what does that mean? Jesus told Peter, Peter, the devil was asked that he may sift you like wheat. What's sift mean? It means you separate when you sift. He wants to separate you from Christ. He wants to separate you from faith. He wants to separate you from the word of God, separate you from the gospel, separate you from the people of God. He wants to sift you, get you out there alone, and then like a roaring lion, mm, go for your jugular. 
And, and what you need when Satan is after you like that is you need solid biblical truth and biblical convictions fastened to your soul so he can't draw you away from Christ. You will not be moved away from the hope of the gospel. So we are called to be Christian men and women and boys and girls of settled, solid biblical convictions. Now, I don't mean to say that this means you need to be an expert in the Word of God. I don't, I don't, mean, the, I don't mean to say this means that you need to be like world-class in systematic theology. It, it just means there are, there are basic core doctrines of the Christian faith in which you ought to be established. You ought to be firm. I mean, like, let's start with the most basic. There's a God. He's the Trinitarian God. He is God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. He created all things and us. We fell. You need a doctrine of the fall. What's wrong with humans? We're fallen. You want to understand that. But he also sent a redeemer. Well, who's the redeemer? Jesus Christ. How did he redeem us? He offered himself in our stead a vicarious substitutionary atonement on the cross. You need to understand, this book is God's word. He reveals himself in creation, but he reveals himself in a book verbally. And we believe the, the word of God is God's word. It is inspired. It is inerrant. It is sufficient. It is the only thing we need for godliness, everything we need for godliness. So you believe these basic doctrines. You believe salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. You believe there's a last day and a judgment. You believe there will be eternity in heaven or eternity in hell. And it all comes down to, have you called upon the name of the Lord Jesus? So things like these, not some arcane little, you don't have to figure out are you pre-millennial or post-millennial or amillennial or pan-millennial, that means you believe all of them, or wind-millennial, that means you're blown from one to the other all the time. You don't have to have that all figured out. But you do want these basic Bible doctrines fastened around you so that you're clear about them and nobody can pull you away. Now, the alternative, and there's plenty of this in our day, there are rather doctrineless, convictionless Christians and rather doctrineless, convictionless churches that produce them. Now you're going to see curmudgeon Steve a little bit. Now you're going to see grumpy Steve a little bit. There are, I'm not just being a curmudgeon. I'm not just being grumpy. There are those things. We're, we're not the first people in church history to have such churches producing such Christians either. By the way, just for one example, let me take you to another era. Let's do a little church history. Let's go back for a minute. It's not really church history. Let's go back to the 1800s in England. Let me, let me introduce you to a man, a great man of God in that era. Here he is, J.C. Ryle is his name. Got a picture of Ryle? There he is, thank you very much, love that beard. <laughs> he was an unusually large man for his day. He was six foot three, 250 pounds. And he was a, a I think I have it right, he was a bishop in the Church of England. So he was a very influential man. He was a contemporary of, and he and Spurgeon, he was a contemporary of Charles Haddon Spurgeon, who died in 1893, and they knew each other. Ryle's dates are 1816 to 1900, pardon me. Uh, and Ryle 
wrote, a, well, he didn't, he didn't, he never wrote a book, but he wrote a lot and then gave talks based on what he wrote. And a lot of those got turned into books. And the one book that you need to buy if you really want to go to heaven, besides the Bible, <laughs> is J.C. Ryle's book titled Holiness. I pulled mine down off the shelf this week and read from it some more, and, and I was looking for something, and I found it, and here I'm going to share some of it with you, some of what's in holiness. And he's describing what Christians and churches were like in his day, and they were beltless, truthless Christians. I want you to see this. So I'm going to presume upon your patience and read a little more than is wise in a sermon, will you be nice to me? It'll take a little effort on your part, because I know when I'm sitting there and a the guy starts reading, I'm like three sentences, I'm gone. Sometimes when Debbie and I drive, she's reading the book, we're going somewhere, she's reading the book, and I ask her, read me a chapter, but I tell her, you know, I'm horrible at, I'm horrible at listening to that. She's good at it, but anyway, be good at listening to this, please. J.C. Ryle, beltless Christians in his day, 1800s, he writes about them in these words, quote, they have not made up their minds about any great point of the gospel and seem content to be honorary members of all schools of thought. They're part of the denomination called nothing Arianism. You've heard of Presbyterianism. This is nothing Arianism. This dislike to biblical doctrine produces what I must venture to call, if I may coin the phrase, a jellyfish Christianity in the land. That is, a Christianity without bone or muscle or power. Alas, he says, it is a vivid type of much of the religion of this day, 1800s, of which the leading principle seems to be, quote, no dogma, no distinct beliefs, no doctrine. By the way, sometimes in our day, that shows up under the guise of, under the idolatrous worship of, if you would understand me, evangelism and the gospel. All we should preach is the gospel. We only talk about the gospel. Well, that's not much of the Bible. We're supposed to teach the whole counsel of God. Jesus wants his disciples taught to obey everything that he commanded them. One of those commands is repent and believe on the Lord Jesus. But then there's about 600 more commands waiting for you in the New Testament, and you're supposed to be taught those too. All right, I digress. Back to Ryle. Are you still with me? Ross, are you still with me? Laura, poke him if he starts fading. He goes on, we have hundreds of ministers who seem not to have a single bone in their body of divinity. Now, you might not know, but a body of divinity is an older name for a systematic theology. Not a single bone in their body of divinity. They have no definite opinions. They are so afraid of extreme views that they have no views at all. We have thousands of sermons preached every year which are without an edge or a point or a corner. They are as smooth as marble balls. Awakening no sinner and edifying no saint. A little more of J.C. Ryle. This is good stuff. And, and the whole book of holiness reads like this. 
And last, and worst of all, we have myriads of respectable church-going people who have no distinct and definite views about any point in theology. They cannot discern things that differ any more than colorblind people can distinguish colors. They think everybody's right and nobody's wrong. Everything is true and nothing is false. All sermons are good and none are bad. Every clergyman is sound and no clergyman is unsound. These people, he says, live in a kind of a mist or a fog. One last paragraph. You're still looking at me. Look at you. The explanation of this boneless, nerveless, jellyfish condition of soul is not hard to find. It is largely the result of that effeminate dread of distinct doctrine which has been so strongly developed and has laid such hold on many pastors in these days. J.C. Ryle. So if you think I'm a curmudgeon, read Ryle. His day, our day. In contrast to that jumping ship from Ephesians 6 one, for a moment to a parallel passage, Peter writes, 1 Peter 1.13, Wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind. Now, what's, what's that mean? So you're wearing this long Thing and it's time for battle and you're going to have to run. So you grab the loose ends down there and you tuck them in your belt so you can run. Gird up the loins of your mind. Remember, we're taking every thought captive to obedience to Christ. Be sober. What does that mean? Get serious about this. There are more important things to think about than your next meal. And hope to the end for the grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. King James Version, 1 Peter 1.13. So the belt. So how does this belt help us when the darts are flying and we find ourselves in an evil day? Well, what's the devil after? He's trying to separate you from Christ. Remember, I'll say it again, you know, Jesus to Peter. Peter, Satan has asked that he may sift you, but I have prayed for you that your faith would fail not. He was to sift you away from your faith. I've prayed that your faith would fail not. And when you've been restored, strengthen your brethren. So he wants to separate you from the basic Bible doctrines, from faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. He's attacking your conviction with lies and distortions but you've got the basic Bible doctrines so clear, so firmly attached, belted on, he can't possibly pry you away from Jesus Christ. So that's the first piece of biblical armor, biblical convictions fastened on. And when the devil is done tempting you, all we've got is a disappointed devil because you stand. How's your belt? Do you have some distinct doctrines? Do you have some backbone in your body of divinity? 
Are you able to make some distinctions? Wait a minute, that's false. This is true. The word of God says it. I'm not asking that you're into arcane, you know, second and third thing level things. I'm asking about primary core biblical doctrines. Are you strong in them? You need to be. But now there's a second piece of armor. Second piece. Let's go back to Ephesians 6:14. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt which is truth, the belt of truth, and here's the second piece, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, the breastplate of righteousness, the breastplate of righteousness. Now, I don't have a pretty little picture for you this one because you can all picture it. It's a piece of metal right here, right? Which, you know, physically is made to protect your vital organs so they can't stick a spear or a knife or a sword through your chest and get to your heart and your lungs and whatever else. And so the soldier wore a breastplate. So Christian soldiers need a breastplate. And what is our breastplate? It's not a piece of metal. Not, our weapons are not carnal, but they're spiritual and they're powerful. What is the breastplate? It is the breastplate of righteousness. And what does that mean? Let me give you a sentence, simple sentence. Here it is. This is about taking cover behind the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ. So you've got to be wearing the belt so that you understand the truth about righteousness, the imputation of Christ's righteousness to sinners. You've got to be wearing the belt if you're going to also be able to take cover behind the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ, the breastplate. Now, let me clarify. So this is not, this righteousness is not your own righteousness. You don't go like in the evil day. You don't go when the fiery darts are flying right at you. You don't go when the devil's starting with doubt and then trying to get you to question God and then trying to get you to deny God's word and then trying to get you to disobey God. You don't, you don't respond to him by saying, oh, oh yeah, well look, I'm a really righteous person. Now, if that's all you got, He's going to munch you for breakfast. This is not about your righteousness. This is not about your law keeping. This is not how good you are as a child of God, how obedient you are to his commands. If that's all you've got to plead, you're in trouble, right? This is about the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ. Learn, if you haven't learned it before, learn the word imputed or imputation. It's a beautiful word, a great word of the faith. What is it? In fact, there's a double imputation. I believe many of you will know what it is. It's amazing. When you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and repent of your sins, when you turn to God that he may be God and call upon the name of the Savior, all of your transgressions of God's law and all of your iniquities are laid on him. They're reckoned to him. They're imputed to him, all of them. Hallelujah, glory. And he bears them in his own body on Calvary's tree, and he buries them in the depths of the sea. And from that day forward, wonder of wonders, this is amazing. And God sees you in Christ, holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight. So God looks at me and says, Steve, you look so holy to me. I'm like, me? Are you watching? 
You look so unblameable to me. Me? You look so un- unreprovable to me. Me? Don't you know? But I'm seeing you in Christ. And in Christ, you're, you're holy. You're righteous. As far as God is concerned, you have perfectly kept his holy law because Christ perfectly kept it. And here's the other side of imputation. And the righteousness of Christ, his active obedience to God's law, and his righteousness in soul, not fallen, is imputed to you. And in God's sight, it becomes your righteousness. Think of this. We have a big sheet of paper, a ledger, whatever it is. There's a line down the middle. On the left is my name at the top, Steve Hartland. And there's a list of my sins. It's a long list. It's getting longer every day. And on the right side, there it says, Jesus Christ and his righteousness. And there's his righteousness. And on the day you call upon the name of the Lord, it's as if. God erases your name over there and puts it over here. And he erases the name of Jesus over there and puts it over here. And these sins Jesus bears for you. And that righteousness is conferred upon you. And in the sight of God, you are holy. Now, you need that. This is a breastplate of righteousness because what's the devil do? Well, he, he gives you the double whammy. First, he comes to you and he tempts you. And he tempts you and he deceives you and he lies and he tricks you. And so instead of saying, liar, you believe him and like the fish and the Lord, boom. And then he says, look at you, pathetic excuse for a Christian. You call yourself a child of God? Double whammy. Tempt you into the sin and then blame you for the sin. Rub your nose in the sin. And what do you say? If all you have is your own righteousness, you just say, "Uh, I'm, I'm a pretty good person. But instead, you can say to him, oh, devil, is that all you got? You don't even know the half because you can't read my thoughts. If you knew my thoughts, you'd have way more to level against me. But I have the righteousness of Jesus Christ. You're going to need that breastplate if you're going to make it. Now, just to teach us some more about the imputation, let me go to some of the big passages on it. Where do you go for imputation? This is a quiz, Cornerstone Church. Come on. Where do you go? Romans chapter 5 is the big one. You were in the first service. It's not fair. (laughs) 3, 4, and 5. Let me show you a few verses. Romans 3, 21. But now, now that Christ has come, But now the righteousness of God, that is how to be right with God, has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. What do I have to do to be righteous in the sight of God? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified, same Greek word, made righteous by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. That's the imputed righteousness of Christ that we're talking about. Or one verse from chapter 4, Romans 4, 3. What does the scripture, the Old Testament scripture, what does the scripture say? It says this, quote, Abraham believed God, and it, the belief, was reckoned, counted, imputed, same 
different translations of the same word, to him as righteousness. All he did was say, I believe you, God. And in our day, it's I believe you, Jesus Christ is Lord, and he's my Lord. And it was reckoned to him as righteous. And then we come to the, the big one, Romans chapter 5. You, you ha- your belt will get thicker and stronger and more fastened on if you know about imputation from Romans chapter 5. Romans 5, verse 12. This is going to take some explaining. Let me read it, and then I'll explain it. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, Adam, and death through sin... God told him in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. And he died spiritually that day, and he died physically 900 years later. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. Why do we die? Because we all sinned in Adam. We sinned with him and fell in him. We were in him. He was our federal head, just as Christ becomes our federal head in righteousness. Adam was our federal head, and when he went down, the whole race went down. Verse 13, Paul's going to prove this. It'll take some explaining. I'll just read it first. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. Moses received the law from God on Mount Sinai in the 1440s BC. There were a lot of people prior to that. They didn't have the law. Sin was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet, death reigned. Those people still died. Death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam. They didn't have a law of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. What's he saying? He's saying, let me prove the doctrine of the imputation of Adam's sin to the race in this way. There are other ways, but in this way. Think about this. He says, look, from Adam till Moses received the law on Mount Sinai, there were no commands. So people's sins aren't being reckoned against them, but they all died. Why did they die? Adam died because his sins were reckoned against him. He had a command. He broke the command. They all died. They didn't have a command. How come they died? And he's saying, because they were in Adam. You're either, here's something you need to know about yourself. You're either in Adam or you're in Christ. And when you believe on the Lord Jesus and turn to God that he may be your God, God takes you out of Adam and he places you in Christ. And now you're in Christ. In Adam, you receive all the fortunes or penalties of Adam. And in Christ, you receive all the blessings and benefits of Christ. And so what you need is a great transfer from Christ to, uh, from Adam to Christ. He goes on a little more in Romans 5, verse 18. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men... So one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men, understood, who believe on him. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many, who believe on him, understood, will be made righteous. Bombs about imputation, Romans 3 and Romans 4 and Romans 5. And it's that righteousness, the righteousness of Christ, that is our breastplate. So when the temptation is fierce and you've failed and you've sinned and the devil's accusing you and he's rubbing your nose in it, you just say, ah, but I'm still righteous in Jesus Christ. The grace of God to sinners and I'm pardoned even for that. That's our breastplate. 
Romans 6, 14 again, please. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. This is how we fight the devil. Not with some of the silly stuff that we hear in our day. Let me just take a moment to mention a few of the silly things we hear in our day. Like Ephesians 6, this is how to do spiritual warfare. There's nothing in Ephesians 6 about this thing. Well, you need to hire the special warfare guy to come to your city, put him in an apartment. He'll spend three days identifying who are the demons who are over the city. Once he's identified them, how does he do that? Then he's going to gather an army to pray against those specific demons so the city can be delivered from X, Y, and Z. There's none of that in God's word. That's people making that stuff up. Don't you believe it? Or there's all these people going around rebuking the devil all the time, rebuking the devil. Well, guess what? You can rebuke the devil and he can still eat you for lunch. Ephesians 6 doesn't say, now let me teach you how to rebuke the devil in the name of Jesus. No, it doesn't do that. What you need is the belt of truth fastened on. What you need is the breastplate of the righteousness of Christ established in your soul. This is how we fight the devil. So, how's your belt? Cornerstone, I'm going to make a shameless advertisement. Cornerstone has something coming in our corporate life that is specifically intended to help you thicken and tighten your belt of truth. You've heard about it? It's called Downstairs Doctrine. Downstairs Doctrine. DD, like Dunkin' Donuts, but better. <laughs> Let me let the cat out of the bag and tell you the truth. We've been hiding this from you. The truth is, it's Sunday school. Remember Sunday, remember Sunday school? Like you'd go to Sunday school and then you'd go to church. We have that starting first Sunday in April. Thank you. Thank you. Thought there for a minute. All right. And, and the, whole, the, whole, the way this works is you could, in the first hour, during the first service, there'll be a class downstairs. One guy is teaching that class, and he's teaching on doctrine ABC. And then, the, then in the second hour, you come to church, and somebody else in the first hour went to church, and in the second hour, they're going to go downstairs, and a different guy is teaching the same doctrine to ABC, but he'll teach it his way, and the first guy will teach it his way, and the teachers will change from week to week, so we have six guys signed up to teach at different slots on different days, and we're doing systematic theology at like basic Bible college level so you can become stronger. Well, let me stick with the terminology. So your belt can thicken and get fastened on more tightly. I'm liking those applause, man. Liking that. How's your belt? And how's your breastplate? The, the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ. Let me read one stanza from Augustus Toplady's justifiably famous hymn, Rock of Ages, cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. Let the water and the blood from thy wounded side which flowed be of sin the double cure, save from wrath and make me pure. 
Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this time, gathering ourselves, opening your word. We pray that the spirit of God would open the eyes of our hearts that we may see wondrous things in your word. We pray that men and women and boys and girls in the hearing of this message will be saved, that they'll, they'll turn and believe on you, Lord Jesus, and find the forgiveness of their sins and everlasting life. They might pray, Lord Jesus, save me. Forgive me of my sins. I've been a terrible sinner. I've ignored you, but I've heard you're a merciful and gracious Savior, and so I'm turning to you. Would you be my God and my Lord? And many of us have so turned, Father. You know who we are. And we pray that you would help us to be strong and to be armed. We pray that you would thicken and toughen and tighten our belt of truth. We pray that our breastplate of righteousness in Christ would be strong and would fend off the fiery darts of the devil so that we may stand in the evil day and having done all, stand. Lord Jesus, we are weak, but you are strong. Keep us by your power. We pray in Jesus' name, amen, amen. You wanna to talk to a Cornerstone pastor? One of us would love to talk to you. All you have to do is text the word pastor to the number on the screen and we'll be in touch. Pastor Stan. Thank you, Steve, and good morning, everyone. This is the time in our service where we reflect upon and remember.